and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. I do just want to say uh, thank you to Jeff and the pastoral team, the elders uh, here at Bent Tree for allowing me to come and do this. This is not something that I would want to do. Uh, as, a, as a lay person and as someone who is not uh, an elder at Bent Tree Church without their approval, because this is a serious task um, that I do take seriously, and it is a responsibility that primarily falls to the elders. So to have them uh, affirm and say that they're okay with letting me do this today uh, means a lot. So I do want to give my uh, sincere thanks. So if you have your Bibles with you today, we are going to do a little bit of a one-off sermon. Since Paul is not here, we will not uh, be continuing in the Gospel of John, uh, but we're actually going to look at the 33rd Psalm. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 33. This is something that was uh, already on my heart and mind as uh, I'm going to be sharing this message with a sister church, uh, Calvary Derby Hill, next week. And so when Paul called me on Thursday with the SOS, uh, I kind of knew where I would, where I would want to go, some of the stuff I had already been looking at. And so we're going to spend our time this morning uh, in Psalm 33. I'm going to begin our time together by reading the entire psalm. Hear the word of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all of his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. And the war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray as we consider this. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. God, that we are called 
to praise you because of what we see and know about you, what is declared to us in this 33rd Psalm. And so we thank you for inspiring the writing of the psalmist. And God, we ask that your same Holy Spirit who inspired the psalmist to write these words, that he would come and help us now as we consider them. To see the fullness of this text. To see your glory on display. And that in seeing your glory, Lord, that we would know you, but not simply know you, but it would cause us to know you and love you and follow you. So God, we ask for your grace. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that can receive the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful text that we have this morning. The 33rd Psalm is, is pretty obviously a psalm of praise. You have a lot of different types of psalms uh, within the Psalter, and so they're, they're all aiming at something different. But I think as we open up the 33rd Psalm, it becomes apparent almost immediately that this is a psalm of praise because of the way that it opens. Look back at verses one through three. It says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And we could spend a lot of our time this morning talking about the instructions that it gives us for praise. This psalm does tell us some things, and a lot of uh, sermons that you might hear from the 33rd Psalm will be more about how we should worship, what worship should look like, because we do get a little bit of instruction here. We're told about musical instrumentation, right, with the lyre and the harp. It can be loud at times. There's loud shouts in here to the dismay of our Presbyterian brothers, right? I actually text my really good friend who's a Presbyterian pastor this morning and let him know that I'm praying for him as he preaches the word of God today. Um, So Kyle, if you see this, I apologize, right? (laughs) There is instruction for worship here, right? How we should worship the Lord. And we could spend our time in that and talk about different modes of worship and uses of instruments and all of those song choices, sing a new song to the Lord, right? Right? All of these kind of things, but I'm going to divert our attention away from that this morning. And we're going to talk not about how to praise the Lord, but why we should praise the Lord. Because as much as this psalm gives us a little bit of introduction to some instrumentation and things like that in the beginning, the bulk of the psalm, the meat that is right in the middle, the psalmist says, we should praise the Lord. He didn't just leave us there. Praise the Lord like this, right? But it begs the question, why? Why should we praise the Lord? Why should we come in here and play a guitar and drums and keys and sing to the Lord? What is it that causes us to praise his name? And why is actually the more fundamental question than how? Because why you do something affects both that you do it, but it also has an effect on how you do it. The reason that you're doing something informs the way that you do it as well. So we're going to look fundamentally today at what the psalmist puts in front of us and says, this is why you should worship the Lord. I think there are three main things that come out in this text of why we should worship the Lord. So the first one is his nature. The second is his power. The third is his decree. His nature, his power, his decree. We'll take them in turn, beginning with his nature. If you would, look back in your Bibles at verses 4 and 5 of the text. 
This is what it says. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So the psalmist tells us, praise the Lord. We should be coming with the harp and the lyre and loud shouts, but here's why. Why? Because. And then he just starts to list some of God's attributes. Upright, faithful, righteous, just, loving. He just cracks them off, right? And it's beautiful when we see who God is and his nature. These are things that we all long for and that we love. And the psalmist does it in a way that is quite poetic, telling us this is why we should worship the Lord. But there's another attribute of God that is not explicitly listed there that I want to highlight because it really, it kind of undergirds and and kind of um, encompasses a lot of the attributes of God. And so I'm going I'm to give you a big word right now, but don't worry, I'm going to explain it. It's called the immutability of God. One of God's attributes is his immutability. And so when we look at a God who is steadfast in his love, faithful, just, righteous, his immutability actually encompasses all of those things and has something to say about them. And God's immutability is really about this, that he doesn't change. That those attributes of love and steadfastness and righteousness and justice, they will always be a part of God's character. James chapter one, verse 17 says it this way. Every good gift And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. As he was, he is, he will always be. And so when we talk about God's immutability, the easiest way to think about it is like this. When it's loud on the television, and I don't want it to be anymore, I press mute and turn it off. The sound is gone. But an immutable attribute is an attribute of God that you cannot press mute on. You cannot turn it off. It will always be there. Volume, all the way up, all the time. God is immutably upright, faithful, righteous, just, and loving. And so we praise his name for his goodness of who he is. Secondly, his power. His power. Look at verses six through nine. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters as a sea, uh, of the sea as a heap. He puts the depths in storehouses Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So next, the psalmist in these verses talks about, turns our attention to God's power. His immense power. And he does so by pointing to the created order. 
Creation, and in particular, the heavens, are highlighted because I don't think there's anything that makes us feel so small as when we gaze into the heavens at night. We can stand on an ocean shore and look out to where all you see is water, right? And it it has this kind of effect on you where you, you feel the vastness of the ocean. And that has a little bit of this effect on us. But when we lay down at night in an open field and gaze into the heavens and see star after star after star after star in a place that we could never get to, we could sail the ocean blue. But we could never get to any of these places that are in the far reaches of outer space. And so when we see them, we feel just how infinitesimal, how extremely small we really are. And I don't know if if you guys have seen, I mean, they've been all over the internet. I can't imagine anybody who doesn't live under a rock, right, hasn't seen the recent photos that were released by NASA from the Webb Telescope. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Amazing. And you see the vastness of the universe. And you think about verse 9 of Psalm 33. For he spoke. And it came to be. He commanded. And it stood firm. He didn't take millennia. In order to piece the stars together. He simply spoke a word. And they came into existence. The vastness of space. What power to speak and have galaxies flung into their place. And I think about the God that we serve in contrast with some of the gods that early Christians would have been in contact with. And and if you've ever seen, uh, if you're familiar with Greek mythology at all, there's one Greek God that I'm going to pick on right now because he doesn't exist, right? But that Greek God is Atlas. And Atlas was heralded in Greek mythology for his strength, And what did Atlas do? He held the world up. Atlas's job was to hold the world up. So you see these images, these statues that were carved to Atlas, and the world is on his back. And this man is hunched over, trying, just straining to hold the world up. And I see Atlas, and all I can think is, what a weak God. What a weak God straining to hold up the earth and we serve the God who spoke the universe into existence who who simply says a word he commands and it stands firm he doesn't stand there straining to keep it in place at the word of his power all things hold together we praise God his nature his immutable attributes his power and also his decree Look at verses 10 through 17. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. 
The war horse is a false hope of salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. We see that God did not simply create the world in love and righteousness and faithfulness. He upholds it by the word of his power and he is also active in the affairs of the world. God is active in the affairs of the world. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God is active. He knows all. He sees all. And he is working all things according to his good pleasure. And therefore, we have to acknowledge, when we look at the the grand scale of the world stage, We have to acknowledge in the midst of everything that is going on globally, which we know about now more than we ever did before, even in the midst of all of these things where there are powerful players doing things and making changes and things that are within human control and outside of human control, all of these things are happening. And men are making their plans to take over kingdoms and to run kingdoms into the ground. And yet, Proverbs 19.21 holds true. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And that, to me, is what verses 16 and 17 really draw us to. We're not really even in charge of the things that we think we are. Control is an illusion that we comfort ourselves with. And it's best that we let the illusion die And cease to comfort ourselves with something that isn't real and look to the one who can sustain. Verses 16 and 17 just bring this out. What what is the most secure thing that you could possibly have if you lived in this day and age? You could be a king with a great army. And yet the psalmist in Psalm 33 comes right after the thing that you think makes you most secure. And he says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. Ask Goliath. A war horse is a false hope of salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. These are reminders that we cannot be self-reliant. So we ask the question, Christian, where is your hope? Is it in your own strength? Or is it in the decree, the will of the Lord? We have to say it. The banker is not saved by his great capital, nor the investor by her great foresight. And a booming real estate market is a false hope of security, and by its production of wealth, it cannot save. The activist is not saved by her cause, nor the politician by his social policy. The ballot box is a false hope of salvation and through its great influence, it cannot save. Or should I get a little closer to home? The congregation is not saved by the worship set and the members not saved by their church attendance. The great preacher is a false hope of salvation and by his great teaching, he cannot save. Friends, Our hope is in the Lord. So 
This is the reality that we have to come to. Where is our Christian hope? The psalmist breaks it down and says, listen, it's God's decree, his counsel, his plan stand. The things that you think can save, the great army, the great strength, the war horse, they don't work. So where do we look? He tells us, look at verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. How kind. The psalmist tells us not only where we can't go, he warns us of the places that people try to go that don't really work, and then he points us to the truth. Those who fear the Lord. And for Israel, the intermingling of all of these things, God's immutable goodness, right? His incredible power and his plan to save was something that was both proclaimed and experienced. Okay? So God gave us these things and then he both proclaimed it and then they experienced it. It is something that we know and something that we know right? So if you think about his declaration in places like Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where he tells them these things about himself. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. In speaking to Moses, it says, the Lord passed before him being Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so, God, these things were declared. They were known by God's declaration of who he was. But they weren't simply known by the Israelites through this mere head knowledge of God's declaration. The Israelites also had concrete, tangible experiences of God displaying these things. Think about places like the Red Sea, where they experienced God's goodness and love for them. All circled around his power and his divine plan and decree for what should happen that he could deliver them. At Jericho, I think of the king of Israel getting ready to go fight the Syrians, and he's afraid, and Elisha says, open his eyes, Lord. And he sees, and behold, on the hillside, flaming torches everywhere. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And the king of Syria is going to learn today that the king is not saved by his great army. It is the will of the Lord that stands. So these things intermingle in a way that teaches us declaration and experience. And it's so vital that they work together. They have to work together in order for these things to happen. You see, if God was completely loving and completely powerful, but had no real plan, no real decree, for how he was going to save us, then we would be wandering aimlessly through the earth as we wait for God to work this thing out. But then if you think about God's power displayed in verses six through nine, it would be really, really scary without verses four and five. You see, if God was that powerful that he could speak creation into existence and uphold it by his word, but he wasn't loving he wasn't faithful, 
He wasn't just. He would be a tyrant. It would be a fearful, fearful thing for everyone on the face of the earth. But that's not the case. We have a God who is that powerful, who has a plan. And we get verses four and five. He is upright. His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of his steadfast love. These three characteristics of God that the psalmist puts in front of us are so important that they work together. Or could you imagine if God had a great plan and he was really loving and faithful and just and steadfast, but he wasn't powerful. I mean, the Broncos, from what I know, are pretty excited about Russell Wilson, right? But imagine talking to the GM and him saying, we got this new offensive lineman, He loves Russell Wilson. He is so steadfast and righteous and he loves Russell Wilson. He will do everything he can to protect Russell Wilson. Great. So what's he look like? He's 5'11", 150, right? (laughs) Do you think the Raiders would care how much that guy loves Russell Wilson? They will plow over him and murder Russell Wilson every chance they get because you can be as loving and as steadfast as you want to be, but if you do not have the power to bring about your good plan and your good will and your good purpose, it doesn't matter. In order to save, you have to be willing and able. And praise be to God that he is not only willing to save us, he is able to save us. So Israel is called by the psalmist to sing. They have reason to praise God's name. And friends, we have more. We have more. God's immutable character, all of his justice and love and kindness and righteousness and steadfastness, it was displayed to us in Jesus in a way that the Israelites never saw it. We see his immutable character displayed in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, that he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We have seen God's goodness. We have seen God's power on display through Jesus. When Jesus turns the water into wine, when he calms the sea, when he heals the sick, when he raises the dead, we see God's power on display in Jesus. And even more, when on our behalf, he says, it is finished. We see God's power in Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's decree. All of God's plans for the nations and his purpose standing throughout human history, his decrees lead to a climax in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so Ephesians chapter one, verses three to 10 says it this way. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Hear the language of his decree? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, his decree, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you see these tr- three truths of God, his nature, his power, his decree, reaching their climax in the person and in the work of Jesus? So we sing, we praise God. The psalmist calls us into this praise because we have a God who is infinite and immutable in his love, infinite in power, And he made a declaration and a decree to save us. And he will do it. So when it comes to our hope in this world, we don't hope in wealth or military might. We hope in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And in him alone, because there is salvation in no one or nothing else. There is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So as we walk this life, of God's decrees, his perfect plans that have a sweet and bitter providence at times. May we sing with the psalmist, verses 20 to 22, that our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Lord, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us as we hope in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done to reveal yourself through your word and through creation. God, we ask that you would come and work in our hearts, that you would strip away our self-reliance. God, that we would not look to ourselves or to anything else that we have, any wealth that we can amass, any power or influence, Lord, but that we would look only to Jesus as the one who can truly save and forgive us of our sins. God, we ask for your grace to look to you. We thank you that you have done it, that Jesus actually said, it is finished. May we hope in you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.